Hey everyone, it's Erin Kristalis, host of UNT Pod. And before we get started with today's episode, I want to take a quick moment to encourage you to check out the Ollie at UNT podcast, hosted by Osher Lifelong Learning Institute member Susan Supak. Each 30-minute podcast features members of the Ollie at UNT community delving into fascinating topics, including mindfulness, photojournalism in times of war, the search for black holes and quasars, and much, much more. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or by visiting the ollie.unt.edu slash podcast link in our episode notes. Happy listening. National Novel Writing Month, which began in 1999, is a deceptively straightforward challenge. Write 50,000 words of a novel during the month of November. At least once every 365 days, typically sometime around mid-October, I tell myself, this is the year. But there's always something that gets in the way of sitting down and putting words to paper. That something is me my fear of failure, my inability to avoid distractions, my tendency toward procrastination. Maybe you felt that way too when you've tried to engage in the creative process. The ideas are there, but the excuses not to write seem somehow bigger and more influential. Bonnie Friedman understands those feelings all too well which is why the UNT Associate Professor of Creative Writing wrote a book that confronts the challenges that inevitably arise when it comes to writing. Writing Past Dark, first published 25 years ago, is a deeply personal exploration of the dilemmas inherent in the writing process, including envy, fear, and distraction. The Center for Fiction has called it one of the essential books for writing, and Poets and Writers Literary Magazine calls it one of the best books for writers. Friedman is the author of two other books, including The Thief of Happiness, which explores writer's block and psychotherapy, and the essay collection Surrendering Oz. She's written several other creative nonfiction essays, which have appeared in The Best American Movie Writing, The Best Buddhist Writing, The Best Writing on Writing, The Best Spiritual Writing, and the best of O, the Oprah magazine. Prior to joining UNT in 2008, she taught at Dartmouth and New York University. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Kristalis, as I talk with Professor Friedman about ways to overcome envy and distraction, the many benefits of writing, and how persistence is the key to growing one's writing abilities. After all, there's a writer in each of us just waiting to emerge. Many of us don't even notice our writing soul, Friedman confides in writing past dark, although it scratches at the door and we are constantly tripping over it. I've been working on my rewrite, that's right. I'm gonna change the ending. Gonna throw away my title and toss it in the trash. Every minute after midnight, all the time I'm spending. It's just for working on the rewrite. That's right. I'm going to turn it into cash. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk is because of National Novel Writing Month. And I feel like that always kind of encourages people to potentially 
try to sit down and write for numerous reasons. The past few months have been a reflective time for many people, which has no doubt led to a desire to express feelings through writing. For those who may be less experienced with the process of creating narratives, what are some of the best approaches to bringing your ideas to life? Well, you know, first of all, I would want to say that that I agree. It's a very unusual time. It's a stressful time. It's a time important for our own history and the world. And so it's very important to, for people to record what they're perceiving, to, 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 to really understand the importance of, especially small things in daily life, as well as the large things that are going on. So I would say one thing that people could do is to keep a writer's journal. I always tell my students that writing is a muscle. The more you do it, the easier it becomes. And so one way to start is to, you know, spend, you know, 20 minutes a day in the morning writing down, even if you just write down a description of what you see outside your window, but it's nice to carry a journal around with you through the day. The more you do that, the more you'll notice things that you wanna write down. So I ask my students to transcribe dialogue that they overhear to record the sensations like what is it like when you step into a church or a store or when you're in Jimmy John's what do you smell just to be recording daily life that 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 is a great way to start and then also you know another thing that is good to do is to write down um you know, give yourself a little little writing assignments because the things that you want to figure out are the same things that other people want to figure out too. So what are the things about yourself that you wish you could understand better and write about that? That's that's very good. And getting into um, a little writing workshop is is good too because one thing that's hard about writing is that we do it in a solitary way. And most of the professional writers I know share their work with other writers. And so if all you read is what's published, you get an artificial idea about what writing is. Mostly it's rough, it's messy, it's, it's um, intuitive. There's a lot of crossing out involved. There's a lot of edit, you know, there's a lot of doing other versions involved. So being with other writers and having somebody to share your work with and then to hear their work, that's also very, um, very useful. But I'd, to get back to your question, I would say a great place to start is to record your own um, observations of daily life. There, there's a lot of great novels that have actually come right out of that. When in, in your book, um, Writing Past Dark, you discuss dilemmas in the writer's life, including things like envy and fear and distractions, and how those dilemmas often make writers feel alone. And I know you just mentioned, you know, writers can feel very solitary. And in the book, you write that you dreamed of creating a book that could serve as a friend to diminish that loneliness. Can you explain what you mean by that and how you feel Writing Past Dark accomplishes that goal? You know, when I was starting out as a writer, I came to realize that the hardest aspects of writing were not technical. Those I could learn. They were the, um, there was the emotional side of the writer's life. So I used to go into bookstores and feel very envious of other writers who had books out already. And I would kind of um, feel very diminished by that. 
I was highly distractible, sounds too street over, somebody, you know, do with their leaf blower would command my attention. I, I um, had uh, very high expectations for my work and I was too perfectionistic. Um, if, if, a, if a piece got rejected in one or two places, I felt so terrible. I didn't have a thick skin. I didn't have grit. I would just feel like it was a terrible verdict on my ability as a writer. So I, I spent so much time feeling low. And, um, you know, I realized that the obstacles that I had to my writing, first of all, I wanted to investigate them. I wanted to understand why I, was I doing this? Why was I, not everybody I knew was doing this. Why was I doing it? It felt, it felt that there were answers in these, um, in these dilemmas if I could examine them. Uh, and I, I became very interested in psychoanalysis. I read Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams and I loved his method. I loved the idea that, that, that our experiences are significant and emblematic and that if you investigate them very often, they contain their own solutions if you look closely enough and if you're not ashamed. So I wrote an essay about envy. It was, was one of the first essays I'd ever written and I sent it off to the New York, to the New York Times, and they, they, to my shock, they ran it. And after that, and they got so much response, so many people wrote to me saying that they identified that I thought, gee, there are so many other topics in the writer's life that also people feel ashamed to talk about. Let me, let me examine them. I'm not, I, I'm interested in them and let's see what doorways they open up. So in answer to the question of, um, did I feel that it, that it, that the book did for me what I wished, I would say, yes, I was a different person when I was done for having investigated these things. When you just mentioned envy as a <laughs> dilemma that nearly every writer faces, um, whether they're questioning why someone else's work is better or why that person found more success at a younger age, as a writer, is there any way you can take that sort of inescapable feeling of envy and turn it into a more positive motivator? You know, early on, I asked a, a psychoanalyst, what does envy become? What does it turn into? And she said, gratitude. And I did not believe her. I, I had no idea what the woman was talking about. I mean, it sounded very good. I was just like, that was just completely counterintuitive. And I have to say for many years, I needed to avoid going into bookshops because they made me feel so terrible. I, I trained myself to walk past them. But I have to say there are many great writers who have been afflicted with envy. I was reading a while ago an interview with the Pulitzer Prize winner, Jumper Lahiri, who, who wrote the um, her first book of short stories, got a Pulitzer Prize. And, and even after that, she said she couldn't read the New York Times book review because it made her so envious. It made her feel bad about her work. So, um, so I'm not, you know, I think, I think you're right that in your question that it is a very uh, general feeling, even Shakespeare in a sonnet claimed to have felt it. What I did find to my surprise is that I could acclimate myself to reading books that inspired envy. And I did so by reading them only when I was on the uh, walking machine, the treadmill at the gym. I, I had a rule, 
so that I so I, I took a book. So so the first book I read this way was called um, The Girls by Emma Klein, a wonderful novel. And I read it and I, I loved it. And it, when when I got off the so I would walk for 40 minutes in the evening after my writing was done. So it was like a different time of the day. And I would read and I loved it so much. I was underlining and I started learning. And what I discovered was that the books that really made me most envious were the ones I had the most to learn from because they were by women. They were by people like me. And those writers were, were solving the same questions. They were working on the same questions I was working on. So it was hugely useful to discover where do they begin their story? How do they begin their story? How do they record this kind of experience? How do they develop it? Where do they end it? I, th I think it's very important for writers to safeguard their good feeling about their work and do what it takes. If it means walking past the bookstore, if it means not allowing yourself a certain kind of conversation, that that's very important. That's very important to do. It's important to safeguard one's work. I'm curious too if that's something that you talk to your students about because you know I always felt in writers workshop you're sharing your work you're hearing other people's work and it's a very very easy to feel envious of someone who's reading work that you think is much better than your own so is is that a discussion that that you've had with your own students I tell my students that each one has a distinctive voice I think it's very difficult to hear what is unique about your voice when you're a younger writer. And it's easy to hear what is strong in somebody else's work. So um, what my class does a lot of writing together in you know, free writing. And when, when we're done, we read to one another. And I just ask students to applaud after each one and not to um, critique. I think of it as being like, the need sometimes, like when I was a girl and growing up, I would sing rounds with my sister and I'd have to put my fingers in my ear. Otherwise, I would only hear her voice and I couldn't appreciate, couldn't, I would get lost. And I think, I think, um, you know, it's very, very easy as a young writer or a writer at any stage not to know what you're doing that is strong or unique. Um, I think that I think that is you know very very common. But the important thing is just to keep doing one's work. It's for others to decide. As long you, the, the important thing for the writer is to stay in connection with their work and with the questions that they're asking, with the fictional world that they're creating, the places that are significant to them. The more you're in connection with your own work, the stronger your resistance to these undermining voices. On that same note, you wrote that as a student and a professor, you've noticed that there's not necessarily a correlation between those whose writing is excellent and those who feel good about their writing. How important is one's attitude toward their work when it comes to growing as a writer? It's, it's very important to realize that the job of a writer is not to assess how good their work is, but to keep doing it and keep developing it. In a way, the person who has a stronger confidence has a great advantage because they will be able to keep doing their work and they will learn. Doing the work teaches you, the more you write, the more you learn. You, you, you learn, where do I begin the essay? How do I develop the essay? What kind of an ending is a strong ending? And then you notice how, what other people's endings are like, what other people's openings are like. So the more you can do the work, for sure, the stronger the work grows. I know that Malcolm Gladwell had a, a, a book talking about genius 
and how a prerequisite is spending a thousand hours doing the thing that whatever it is that you're doing and it, it is interesting to me the number of great artists that began when they were children i was just listening to an interview with the with Alison Bechtel, who did Fun Home. And she was drawing cartoons. She showed these cartoons that she drew as a young child. And the thing that astonished me was twofold. One, these were terrible cartoons, but she kept drawing and now she's magnificent. And secondly, she valued them enough to save them. Can you imagine how, how, how highly she values her own work that she had her first cartoons from when she was a little child? And that says to me something about how important she understands. Even as a kid, even a little kid, she had that kind of confidence. What I'm wondering too, you know, and, and you kind of touched on this, but what is the importance of persistence when it comes to the creative process, especially if you're someone maybe who's been getting a lot of rejection letters or who's questioning, am I, you know, am I doing the right thing? Should I continue writing? You know, how important is it to, to stick with it regardless? Well, I think, you know, you're asking two really good questions. One is about persistence. And one is if you should stay writing if you, if you wonder, you know, I, I, what, what I, in my own experience, I'll take the second part first. In my own experience, I've stayed writing, not because I thought I was good at it. And, um, and not because I enjoyed it but because it was absolutely essential. I needed to understand the significance of my own experiences. The only way I could do that was writing about them. And I think that that's, that's not unusual. One thing that writing does is it allows you to be a smarter version of yourself because you could correct, you reflect on what you've written. So whatever ends up on the page is actually a superior Bonnie Friedman than, than this Bonnie Friedman. And that's such a, a fabulous thing to have happen. Um, but in terms of, I think persistence is extremely important. All the writers that I know who are, um, who are successful have a great deal of persistence and drive and discipline. So I think, I think persistence is so important because the world is full of illusion. We could feel terrible about something and it could actually be very good. I've had the experience, you know, maybe you have too, of reading something that I had decided was terrible and, you know, of mine. And, and I stopped writing it because I lost faith in it. And then I read it again and I'm like, oh my God, this, is, this was so working and why doesn't the rest of it exist? Or some peace of mind. I had a piece that I sent, to an, uh, sent out and it was just, it, I didn't even get rejections, zero, nothing, no editor took it. A friend of mine took my piece and she submitted it through her publicist and it was accepted overnight and I, by the a place that turned it down and I was told they love it. So it just shows you it, it, to some extent it's who is submitting it. It's the, you know, just a lot of circumstances that surround the actual work itself. So it's very important to, to maintain one's faith. Did you have a discussion with that publisher about how it got accepted the second time? And not no, I was just grateful. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it taught me something big. If your work is turned down, you think it's about the quality of the work, and that's not necessarily so. I've had it happen, too, that I've had pieces turned down, and a long time later, I realized it was the wrong publication. I was writing, for instance, I wrote a piece about 
why the girls that I grew up with didn't have children. And all these male editors turned it down. And then at one point I heard an editor say that the, the, the pieces that he accepts answer the questions that he's asking in life. Well, you know, he's not asking why the girls he grew up with and himself didn't have children. That's not a question he's asking. <laughs> yeah. You know, when, when the piece was rejected by that really wonderful publication, I felt so hurt. And in retrospect, a decade later, I thought, oh, you know, now I have the answer. He wasn't, you know, it didn't, it did, wasn't something that grabbed him. I, I had a friend who was um, an editor. She had, and I asked her, you know, when did she, th the, the, the Vita statistics were being published about how much, how many fewer women than men were getting published in, you know, the New Yorker and other literary journals, Paris Review. And I said, when do you think this is going to change? And she said, when there are more women who are editors. So, you know, so I think it's important to realize that for the writer, you just have to keep, just do the, do your best work and keep working on it and keep attached to the questions it's asking and um, and understand that the world that it is released into is very subjective. It's not objective. They, nobody can can tell you in any sort of definitive way the value of the work. Right. Well, you know, we often hear the advice, write what you know. But in Writing Past Dark, you pose the question, is it wrong to write about the living? Um, and you know, you have this this great story of of trying to figure out if you, if you should write a story about your sister. And you know, I'm wondering what are some of the ethical considerations writers should weigh before they incorporate personal details into their work? It, you know, it it is it is a big issue. Um, to, you know, to write to you know, you don't. It's it's mortifying to think that you're going to hurt the people that you write about. That said, most of the things that we have a great drive to write about many of them are the things that we're unable to talk about. So we want to write about them. And then those things have a great power and energy and validity. And those are the things that readers crave to hear about because they're the things that don't fit into ordinary conversation. So the way I think of it is the, our audience is not our family. It's not even necessarily our friends. It's like the secret the secret companions of our soul, the people who are like us that we have never met. And we need to figure certain things out in life and, and commit it to paper and share that with others who will feel when they read it validated and that they now understand some aspect of their own life that, that they wouldn't have understood before. So I think it's very important to actually to write the truth of one's experience and to understand that for some, for some of us, there will be a great cost to doing that. The, the same author, Alison Bechtel, was saying that she, she wrote her first book was about her father who um, was a closeted gay man who she thinks ended up committing suicide in, in midlife to do with the fact that, um, that in a way that he was going to, you know, that his, his wife was leaving him, his daughter had come out and he envied her freedom. And she said she knew that her mother would be very unhappy with the fact she was writing this book. Her mother was a very private person, but she felt like it was important for her to tell this story. And she told her mother and she, according to her, she's, you know, she said she had to endure her mother's response to it. But, um, 
I, th I thought that, you know, but think of all the people that have been liberated by reading this particular story, even though it was a cost to the, in the family dynamics. So it's, it's, it's not an easy issue. It's not an easy issue. I admire those who share their manuscripts with the people that they've written about. I have never done that. I always just hope they never come across themselves. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people I'm sure want to get a story out, but don't necessarily want to be a professional writer. They don't necessarily want to be published. What are the benefits of writing for those who may not have an innate ability for it or a passion to make that a full-time endeavor? You know, the, the benefit to me, I think, is that writing helps you understand your experiences, which is an enormously useful thing. There is also, although some professors don't want to admit this, there is a therapeutic quality to it because you, you, you're, you, as you are um, overcoming what you didn't understand before and you're, you are, you are putting, you, you're, an aesthetic distance gets between you and the thing you're writing about. So I would say having some sort of a writing practice is great whether or not you ever want to publish. I find my favorite writing is early in the morning. I sit with my journal in the window here and I write down, I write down, you know, things I'm trying to understand in my life. I write down things that my mother said to me. I write down the structure of what I saw on Netflix the night before. That is my favorite time of day. I, I describe what the tree, I have a tree out there. It's my companion in New York is the tree and it, it is, now the leaves are like a, a golden yellow lemony color like Tiffany. And I, I love that tree. And the fact that I've written about it makes me appreciate its different moods, its different personalities. It has a Zen quality to it. Or this morning, this air conditioner here, it's it, 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 like the, the rain was hitting it. And it was kind of plinking a little bit like a tuneless piano. And because I write, I noticed I think of certain phrases and I put them in my book and then later I have them. So it's like, whether or not you publish, it's like you get more out of life from writing about it. It's like you get a double life. You get the actual experience and then this expanded awareness, quite independent of whether you ever publish. Well, I like too how even when you were describing that, you know, you were using simile and metaphor just in the conversation. Do you feel like the more you write influences the way you speak or the way you speak influences the way that you write? I think the more you write, it influences the way you speak and it influences your perceptions. You will notice things differently because I read, I was, I was here in New York at one point, I was thinking, boy, I feel like the sound in the street reminds me of when I was growing up in the Bronx, what is it? And I was noticing there's a slight echo off of the brick buildings. And I, I don't think I would have had that question if I weren't writing, if I weren't a writer. I feel like you carry your right, just like when you go to a museum and you leave that museum for a while, you have something I call museum eyes, where you see the, the world is more beautiful, it's patterned, especially depending on which artist you've been looking at. You, it's like they reprogrammed your brain and for a little while you're seeing the world the way 
that artist would see the world, maybe for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, if you're lucky. And I think that writing does the same thing. It, 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 it probably opens up certain neurological connections, verbal ones, but also sense-based sense ones, so that you, that you perceive the world differently. You'll, 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 you know, it would seem very natural to think like, what is that aroma in the air? How could I describe that? And you, no, you do notice things more if you're a writer, if, if, if you have a practice of writing. Even the term writer, I regard with a certain, sad, a certain um, suspicion because it, people act like it's some sanctified thing that you have to be, you have to have published a certain amount to, to be it. I just feel like being a person who writes opens up these possibilities. It, it changes your presence in the world in a good way. Well, I know you mentioned earlier too, sometimes you'll write something and you'll think it's terrible and then you go back to it and you're like, oh no, actually it's pretty good. Is there a way to recognize when you've written something great I don't know that there is. I've been told by people that they really love writing past dark, and I can't understand what it is that they love about it. So I would have to say that I have a slight incomprehension about that. I, I remember uh, he, an interview with, I don't know if it's great or not, um, but, but it, it, things that others respond to sometimes surprise me. So um, I, I heard an inter read an interview with the woman, Susanna Kaysen, who wrote Girl Interrupted, and she was very surprised by the big reception that that book got. She, she said she thought of it as sort of a sociological examination of this time in her life and what she experienced. I, I don't know, I don't know that it's, it, it, that it's the artist or the writer's job to do that kind of assessment. I, I think that the the world likes that. They like a horse race, but I, I think I think it's um, it's distracting. So I don't I don't know. There are times that I'll like I just submitted an essay that I worked on with another writer, and I could see how through the revision process it got stronger. But, but um, and so that was satisfying and I was getting closer and closer to what I meant to say. And I was making discoveries along the way. And I think those are all good signs. Like if you're making discoveries along the way, if you're having insights that you didn't think you could have, if, if something in it still excites you and if there's a beauty in the language, those are all really good signs usually. But there's, but, but I don't know that you could ever quite tell, I don't know. Maybe that's the exciting part about writing is there's no empirical way to really judge it. That's right, because when you think there's been so many, you know, masterpieces that weren't celebrated in their time, like when you hear about, you know, Moby Dick, and then there are other ones. I remember when I was growing up, there was all this conversation about who is going to write the great American novel. And, you know, there were these guys with these like these great big, you know, gigantic egos like Norman Mailer, great American novel. And people are not reading that anymore. And in, in retrospect, you know, it's, it's so, you know, even that phrase I find, you know, sort of pompous and sort of off the mark and not what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I am much more interested in 
you know, you know, an individual character's sensibilities and a portrayal of a particular world that I can recognize. The great American novel, to me, you know, just the whole idea of greatness is something that it's, you know, I love that Louise Gluck just won the Nobel Prize. She's an amazing poet, amazing writer. You know, she's kept at it. She was an anorexic as a girl growing up, but she has a beautiful essay about that. But I, I don't, you know, I think she's kept with it because it's what she needed to do. But the idea of greatness is... It's almost an enemy, actually, of getting the work done, I think. Well, what is your, what is your favorite thing that you've ever written? There, there's an essay in my most recent book called, Surre it's called Surrendering Oz. There's an essay in there called How I Learned to Think. And I, I think that's, that's my favorite essay because it's about growing up in the Bronx and, and not doing well in school. When I was when I was in elementary school, I got 60s and 70s, and I I I you you would never guess that there was anybody in there who could ever become a professor. I was a bit of a mess, and then at a certain point, I was really shambles. You know, kooky. You probably look not that different than I do now. Kooky hair, glasses. You know, and. Um, I wasn't getting much attention at home, and so I didn't have an audience, and I didn't know how to go about studying. I didn't know how the kids in school learned stuff. How did it stick to their brains? I just thought they were smart, and they, they picked stuff up. I didn't know how they did it. And then in high school, I had a teacher who explained how to study, and my whole life pivoted a completely different life because of that one teacher who explained how to study. So I learned how to study and suddenly I had the most fun toy in the world, a brain. And I, and I spent all this time you know, studying. So there was nothing as great. No, no going out with no boy, no girlfriend, no dance, no pot. None of it was as fun as studying because I'd been stupid for so many years. And so to discover like, oh my God, this is how you study. And so that's, that was my method for a long time. And then beyond that, when I, how I learned to think has to do with incorporating feeling states into it, which I had kept quite estranged. So that to me is the fav my favorite thing that I've ever written. Um, I, I think because I got to write about these experiences. That's the great thing about writing is that the ability, it, it's, a, it's a companion through life. Your abilities only grow as you get older, if you stay with it. So I'm just, you know, I'm delighted by all the strong writing that is going on at UNT. It, my mother always says to me, do you have any, you know, really talented students? Do you have any amazing students? And I always do. I, I have so many amazing students, so many talented students that I just, you know, I want them to keep going and, and to not lose faith and to just, you know, reconnect with the work and take pleasure in it. And I'm so glad that you invited me to, you know, to talk about writing today. That's, that was very nice of you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It was, a, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. I've been working on my rewrite. That's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the trash. Every minute after midnight. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. To learn more about National Novel Writing Month and Bonnie Friedman's work, 
please see the links in our episode notes. And don't forget to stay connected with us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT. Until next time, be safe and happy writing. Working at the car wash, hasn't got a brain cell.